0: research scholar in law, and the Bartlett Research Fellow at Yale Law School. We'll be discussing a recent article, The Corporate Waqf in Law and Practice, which was published in the Berkeley Journal of Middle Eastern and Islamic Law. I'll a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Aisha, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I wondered if we could start the conversation with maybe an introduction to this concept, this institution of the Waqf. In Islamic law, what is a Waqf what social or religious roles does it play, who endows it, who controls it, who owns it, if anybody, and who receives its benefits?
1: So in simplest terms, the waqf is a religious trust. It emerged in the ninth century, and it endures until today. The waqf provides a legal arrangement that advances charity as a means of fulfilling religious obligation, And, of course, it's used to achieve worldly ends as well, including tax evasion and the protection of assets from mismanagement by successive generations. The waqf is similar to the Anglo-Saxon Trust in that it permits the legal separation between the ownership interest in property and the use of the product, or the right to enjoy the use and advantages of another's property without destroying its substance. As to your question, who can endow a waqf? Pretty much anyone. A donor has to be of age and sound mind to own the property that's being placed into the waqf. And the classical Muslim jurists required that waqf property be declared, whether orally or in writing. Jurists have differed on the types of property that can be used to establish a waqf. So a waqf can be a family waqf with income reserved to the founder's children and their descendants. It can be a charitable waqf with income reserved for charitable purposes, or it can be some combination of the two. As to who controls it, owns it, and benefits from it, the waqf donor has wide discretion in designating beneficiaries, prescribing waqf conditions, and appointing a trustee. Most classical Muslim jurists are of the opinion that no party holds a present possessory interest in the waqf property. Beneficiaries retain interest in the waqf usufruct only, and some jurists have interpreted this to mean that ownership of waqf property becomes vested in God, but more recent views interpret it to mean that the waqf is a juristic person who becomes endowed with ownership. The waqf instrument can reserve to the founder or to the founder and the trustee the right to amend terms related to the use of the use of or the designation of beneficiaries.
0: What types of assets can be placed in a waqf and you know, has that changed over time and maybe led to the waqf having some intersection with corporate law and practice?
1: So the majority Sunni position requires that the founder own the property that he or she is putting into the waqf. The asset has to be a saleable commodity, which means that the founder has to own it, that the asset can include debt or unspecified property, and that it can't include assets that the Sharia forbids Muslims from owning, which would include alcohol or swine, for example. The asset has to generate usufruct, and the most common form of the waqf has been established using real property. But jurists have considered the possibility of placing cash or coins into a waqf as early as the ninth century. The cash waqf, as we now know it, was mainstreamed in the Ottoman era in the 15th and 16th centuries as a special type of waqf endowment whose original capital consists partially or entirely of cash. And over the past 50 years, the corporate waqf, which is the focus of my article, has emerged in countries like Turkey, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Malaysia, and Saudi Arabia, amongst others. The corporate waqf refers to a waqf whose asset base consists of shares in a company. And this arrangement allows an individual to transfer his or her ownership share to a charitable foundation in perpetuity. Voting rights for these shares typically will transfer to one or more trustees, and dividends are allocated to the prescribed beneficiary or beneficiaries.
0: I think it's really interesting in the paper, your discussion about agency costs that might emerge in the administration of WAFs and the intersection of that with corporate governance and the firms in which these shares are held. Could you maybe discuss that point a little bit and maybe how Islamic law has traditionally sought to constrain those agency costs, and maybe how contemporary legal innovations have helped to constrain those costs.
1: Sure. So in the context of the corporate wealth, there are two main agency cost considerations that come to my mind. First is the agency cost within the wakf itself, and this would refer to the potential for misalignment between the trustees and the donors' interests. And in the three examples that I elaborate in my article, and these are Turkey, India, and Malaysia, the law provides for direct government oversight of the waqf trustees. In Turkey, there is a 15-member council of waqfs, which appoints trustees. And the law also requires that trustees issue annual statements. These include updates on the waqf management team, the previous year's activities, budget and balance sheets, a list of assets, and all the companies and partnerships in which the waqf is invested. In Malaysia, there is the state Islamic religious councils, and they serve as the sole trustee for all waqfs. In 2004, the federal government of Malaysia established a department that also oversees the streamlining of walk management and administration for all states. And in India, the Wakf Act of 1995 provides for state Waqf boards, which constitute local committees to manage, regulate, and protect Waqf property. So this is all modern law. Historically, judges would also oversee trustees in the respective context. This might differ between different countries, but generally that was the model. The second dimension of the agency cost problem concerns the relationship between the Waqf and the corporation that it controls, if it's the majority shareholder. I don't have direct examples for the corporate wealth, unfortunately, because data is still quite limited. But notionally, the challenge here is the potential for misalignment between the controlling wealth's managers and the corporation's shareholders. However, we have seen with the analogous foundation-owned firms, which offer a lot more empirical data, that agency cost hasn't actually turned out to be a big problem in the way that theory would have had us predict. And they perform as well as or better than conventionally structured corporations.
0: I wonder if – so, in the paper, you discuss a few examples of corporate walks, and I I wonder if you can maybe discuss them in terms of the scale. What sorts of businesses are they? Are they generally family-owned or controlled? Are they longstanding businesses? Just to kind of give listeners some sense of kind of what we're talking about here.
1: Sure. So they vary quite dramatically. Two of the three main examples that I reference in my article are family-owned companies. So the Wafi Coke Waqf was established by Wafi Coke, the founder of that conglomerate. Also the Hamdard Waf, which is operating in India and Bangladesh and Pakistan, was also a family-owned company. In Malaysia, there's quite a lot of diversity. So you have waf controlled companies that are travel agencies, all the way to industrial conglomerates. So it varies quite dramatically. You also have the corporate wealth manifesting in forms that diverge from a more limited definition that I adopted in my article. And these will even include banks, but they vary quite dramatically. And and again, I, I can't capture the full range of models because it is still being documented and studied at a very early stage, at least as far as I found. But yeah, I would say that most of the big examples, the the larger scale examples have been family-owned companies originally.
0: You mentioned a few moments ago a comparison to Northern European corporate foundations, and that might be something that listeners are maybe not familiar with. I wondered if you could introduce that concept and maybe how those work in European corporate governance and, and corporate practices. and. Do either of these institutional forms maybe challenge the way we think about corporate governance in the U.S. context?
1: The Industrial Foundation refers to a private nonprofit entity that holds a controlling equity interest in a conventional business corporation. That corporation would be the foundation-owned firm. In most cases, the business company's founder creates the foundation and donates his or her equity interest the foundation is prohibited from distributing profits to anyone who exercises control over it, and it's considered to have perpetual life and no owners or members. Foundation-owned firms are surprisingly common in Northern Europe. They include very recognizable companies like Noble Nordisk, Merse, Carlsberg, and IKEA. And although the foundation's board of directors is typically self-electing, some constraints may be imposed on the election process or an outside entity may elect board members. Dean Thompson and Henry Hansman have done a ton of research on foundation-owned firms in Denmark, Finland, Norway, and Sweden. And they found that foundation-owned firms have similar profitability as investor-owned companies. They take less risk and they grow more slowly. Research has shown also that foundation-owned firms in Denmark appreciate better reputations and public perceptions of social responsibility and corporate image ratings than conventionally owned firms do. How they affect our thinking about corporate governance in the U.S.? Foundation-owned firms and corporate works both undermine traditional agency cost theory in corporate law. Conventionally, we understand that efficiency calls for mitigating agency costs by aligning the interests of corporate managers with those of shareholders. This is usually done through mechanisms such as incentive compensation, exposure to hostile takeovers, strong shareholder voting rights. And it's unexpected that these well-established, highly successful companies, which are controlled by self-appointing boards, whose compensation is completely divorced from the company's profitability, would perform as well as or better than conventional companies. The foundation-owned firms and corporate wealth models generally hold both altruistic and commercial objectives, and they conceive of the corporation as more fundamentally involved in social welfare and have that objective baked into their core legal architecture. So I think they can provide us with some imaginative ways to think about the relationships between business and society. And current law does not allow for these forms in the U.S. right now, but that's not to say that it couldn't.
0: Aisha, what key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation and this paper? And are there any open questions in this area that you hope to pursue in future research?
1: So this past year, we've seen a lot of mainstream discussion on the purpose of the corporation. And for anyone who might have missed it, in August of 2019, there were 181 CEO members of the Business Roundtable who published a statement by the title, Statement on the Purpose of a Corporation. The statement departed from the notion of shareholder primacy that the roundtable had long espoused, and it asserted a fundamental commitment to all corporate stakeholders. The statement came in the context of an already very vibrant political debate over the corporation's role in society, so this was in the time of democratic primaries early on, and the corporation's responsibilities to the public. So it's clear that there's already some momentum in the U.S. context for thinking somewhat more critically and broadly about corporate governance and who corporations do and should serve, the long-held expectation that corporate managers should focus on the bottom line only is becoming bad of business. So the models of the corporate wealth and the foundation-owned firm allow us to think of the corporation in a different light. I think they offer us ownership models and formulations of corporate objectives that depart from those we're used to. The only real concrete alternative to conventional corporate structure that I can think about that comes up very mainstream in U.S. conversations is the data corporation. So I think it's useful to look outside the U.S. and to consider other possibilities. One specific question I'd like to pursue further is why we don't have foundation-owned firms in the U.S. today. Industrial foundations were actually quite common in the U.S. historically, It wasn't until 1969 that the Tax Reform Act effectively closed the door on them due to concerns about foundations being used as a tax shelter for the rich. It was a very politically motivated crackdown at the time, and the act prohibited private foundations from owning more than 20% of the voting shares in a business corporation. It is interesting, though, that one anomaly has persisted until today, which is the Hershey Trust Company. And the Hershey Trust Company has almost 80% of the total shareholder vote in the Hershey Company. Jonathan Click and Robert Sitkoff have written a really interesting article on that case. And in terms of future research questions, I would be eager to explore that further. Should the U.S. repeal the tax code provisions that currently bar foundation-owned firms? What would be the implications for opening the door to having companies like Amazon, Facebook, and Google become foundation-owned when their founders retire? I think these are all really interesting questions, and and they'd have pretty significant implications for contemporary corporate governance.
0: Our guest today has been Aisha Saad, Research Scholar in Law and Bartlett Research Fellow at Yale Law School. We've discussed her recent article, The Corporate Walk in Law and Practice, which was published in the Berkeley Journal of Middle Eastern and Islamic Law. I'll link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Aisha, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a pleasure.